gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I am in southern Italy on this great trip with some friends and um, a little disconnected from the real world um, in all sorts of ways. So I am not super granular on the latest stuff. Um, I do gather that things are going about as stupidly as they had been when I left the States a few days ago um, in terms of the effort to find a new speaker for the House of Representatives. Um, I read Nick Catogio on it, and it seemed to be, I was like, re- it's reassuring how um, it's all just still really stupid. And obviously, I've been staying up on the uh, on the Israel front. Um, I did miss... Biden's speech last night, so I don't have any real opinions on it one way or the other. Um, I saw, I first learned of it when I saw that on Twitter, Brit Hume was being savaged for daring to say that uh, Biden's speech was good. So I'm going to defer to Brit Hume's judgment on that and assume it was probably pretty good. I saw that J.D. Vance is outraged that Biden wants to support Ukraine as well as Israel, and he's saying stupid things, as J.D. Vance often does these days, about how uh, unfair and cruel it is to use, to, 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 to exploit Israel to help Ukraine. I just got, you know, I, 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 I think J.D. Vance's descriptions of foreign policy are um, largely boob bait and silly. And um, I find it very, very difficult to take him seriously on a lot of things, but particularly on this Ukraine stuff. I have zero problem with giving aid to both Ukraine and to Israel. I don't think there's anything cynical or perverse about it. Something I've talked about a few times on here. There's a reason why the crappy countries end up being aligned with each other. It's because they're crappy countries. And I don't mean necessarily all the people in them, but I mean the regimes. Authoritarian, bad, uh, often corrupt, uh, illiberal regimes. Uh, they just tend not to get invited to hang out with, um, you know, legitimate liberal regimes, you know. So, you know, NATO, it's not a coincidence that NATO is a, also a club for democracies. And this has always been one of my major problems with the UN. Uh, you know, the UN does some good things. I don't know that all of them are or even any of them need to be done specifically by the UN. But, you know, people will defend the UN. You know, they do this sort of, you know, bait and switch thing where they, you say that the UN is bad and they say, oh, you don't think that you should help uh, poor people with disease in Africa. And I was like, no, I think we should do that. That should be done. You know, I just don't know that we need the UN to do it. And I don't know that doing that stuff justifies all the bad things that the UN does. But we don't need to get into a big UN bashing thing here. I think the UN sucks. But um, the UN is uh, premised on the idea that there is sort of uh, no meaningful moral distinction to be made between, uh, I'll just use the political science shorthand, you know, bad countries and good countries. Um, you know, the, the Security Council is premised 
at its core on the assumption that might makes right. And so you have, you know, you know, we have the five permanent members, three of them are democracies and two of them aren't. And they each have the same kind of veto. They each have the same kind of legitimacy. It's the, it's the problem when, you know, if you create a club whose only criteria for being a member is existing, right? If you are, in fact, a nation state, um, you get to be a member. Then what you get is a certain kind of leveling of or force, false equivalence between, you know, the, you know, decent countries and, and indecent countries or decent regimes and undecent regimes. And the way the UN works is sort of for its, 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 its own sort of marketing, you can call it propaganda too, I think, um, is they use a lot of language about democracy. You know, the General Assembly voted for this. You know, the Human Rights Council voted for that. And, you know, it's a long-running point of mine, but voting um, does not democracy necessarily make, right? And democracy, even if you well, say like voting is the essence of democracy, you know, a lot of the regimes, a lot of the, you know, ambassadors to the UN are, are voting on behalf of governments that do not honor the votes of their own people. Um, and so I don't really give a rat's ass about what the final tally of votes was in the UN on various subjects is, you know, if if we're talking about countries that that are just protecting their own regime um, and not actually looking out for the interests of their own people. And anyway, that being said, I'm sorry I didn't get on, I didn't mean to get on this tangent about the UN, but the crappy countries of necessity end up forming alliances because um, in the same way, so like the, Demo the democratic countries tend to care about the same things and the crappy countries tend not to care about the same things. So if you don't care about human rights, right, if you don't care about uh, international law, if you don't care about all sorts of things, uh, the people who do care about those things are just not going to like want to hang out with you. And so you end up sort of by its own logic forming this loose alliance of, of you know, crappy countries, kind of a legion of doom kind of thing. I just see as being transparently obvious that Russia and Iran and North Korea uh, and China are, you know, this kind of legion of doom alliance. Uh, you know, the word axis is, you know, problematic for, you know, all sorts of PR reasons. But, you know, it's a it's an axis of crappy countries or an axis of assholes, as you know, we were saying last week. I think it's really kind of. I, don't know, I can't say it's completely obvious because we don't have any direct evidence. And I do not like, you know, there's a style of argumentation that often, not always, but often leads to conspiracy mongering and conspiracy theories, which is, you know, uh, cui bono, right? Who benefits? I always like the Italian version, che paga, um, uh, who pays? You look at events and you say, okay, so-and-so came out of this with an enhanced political position or richer or something, they benefited from it somehow. And then you deduce backwards that the event must have been caused by the people who benefit from it. And obviously, sometimes that's accurate because sometimes events are caused by people who then benefit from it. But you need other evidence. Otherwise, you you, you just get into a game of collecting the of connecting the dots that you want to connect. And almost all you know, conspiracy theories work this way so that, you know, 
uh, Charlie Kirk, who I'm just going to say it again because I'm the only person who will give me the credit I deserve on some of these things. Um, I had Charlie Kirk pegged from the get-go, a grifter and a intellectual lightweight, and that he was leading conservatives to a bad place. And I had all these arguments with people about how, no, I had to get on the right side of him, and he was the future of conservatism, and he was really winning hearts and minds on college campuses and all this kind of stuff. I never bought it. I lost some, you know, not many deep friendships, but some, you know, relationships were permanently soured because I just didn't buy it, didn't believe it, thought it was obviously going to end poorly. And um, it looks like it's ending pretty poorly for, I mean, Charlie Kirk got really rich, but, uh, you know, he is uh, self-marginalizing at a pretty rapid pace, which I think is good, in part because Turning Point USA is embracing um, a lot of really stupid anti-Semitic garbage. My theory is, is that this is in part, they think it's what, what Trump wants them to do to sort of, you know, distance themselves from, from Bibi Netanyahu or something like that. But I also think it's a, it's a kind of play against the sort of Ben Shapiro empire because Ben is, you know, uh, you know, very obviously pro-Israel. Um, and it's a way to sort of take shots in that direction. I think it's all juvenile and stupid. Anyway, I brought up Charlie Kirk because Charlie Kirk is a classic version of the sort of lowbrow approach of asking who benefits and then say, and making it sound like it's a really sophisticated theory. And, you know, he came out of the gate thinking that uh, Bibi Netanyahu uh, let the attacks in Israel happen to enhance his political position and to make the protests over judicial reform go away. And uh, that's just really stupid. It's like it's like a Hollywood understanding of how politics works and not even like smart Hollywood. I mean, like bad Netflix, like later seasons of House of Cards, stupid understanding of how politics works. And um, it's very similar to, you know, the stuff that came out of 9-11 where people were saying, oh, obviously, this was an inside job because this was good for George W. Bush and all that kind of stuff. And it's this it's just a really dumb form of analysis. So anyway, I, I bring up this Kui Bono thing. I know I'm rambling. It's because it's it's a weird hour and I am uh, still jet lagged and more than a little hungover and I'm not properly caffeinated. Um, and I've been pissed off about a lot of stuff in the news lately and not able to sort of engage. So, you know. Feel free to turn it off or bear with me. Um, so anyway, the reason I brought up uh, this, I, I want to be clear about my reservations about this kind of analysis. And I don't, we don't have a lot of direct evidence right now, but I think it's pretty obvious that Iran is complicit in this. I think that argument, I mentioned this in my column earlier in the week, I think this argument about whether there's direct evidence that Iran is responsible for this or that Iran greenlit this and all that, I understand why it's important as a matter of intelligence gathering and all that to nail that down and not just like run with the assumption that Iran um, was behind the, the October 7 attack. But at the same time, I think it's kind of a silly, otherworldly kind of argument. Iran has kept Hamas on its payroll since the mid 80s. Hamas has been open that its ultimate goal is the eradication of Israel. 
um, you know, that to create a Palestinian state from the Jordan to the sea, which means eliminating all of Israel. They talk about that eradication of the state of Israel um, would be perfectly fine and consistent with Hamas's principles if that came with the eradication of actual Israelis, all Israelis, which is sort of what we saw um, in those attacks, right? They didn't make a distinction between military and civilian, between military age and, uh, and non-military age. They murdered babies. They murdered old ladies. They murdered everybody that they didn't want to kidnap. And it's uh, the balls on people to talk about how Israel is the one that is indiscriminately killing people when, you know, Israel has a pretty serious policy of trying to be very discriminating in who it kills, whereas as a matter of policy, Hamas is indiscriminate in who it kills as long as they're Jews or supporters of Jews, you know, Zion, friends of Jews, Arabs who want to live in it, just anyone who's in their path, they're perfectly fine with killing those rockets that they launch. They're not guided missiles. They're not aimed really anywhere except in a direction towards Israel. It, Hamas believes in indiscriminate killing. And whenever Israel responds to it, the immediate outcry is, is how indiscriminate Israel is. Israel was so discriminating and not wanting to kill Palestinians that it created Iron Dome and basically treated uh, Hamas's rockets for years, essentially bad weather, like falling rocks or hail or something, right? And Hamas just wanted them to kill random Israelis wherever they found them, right? And yet the idea that people can get on their high horse and talk about how it's, it's Israel being indiscriminate is just sort of baffling to me. Or that Israel is, you know, being genocidal is baffling to me. Um, if Israel wanted to actually be genocidal, there would be, uh, you know, it could have wiped out Gaza a long time ago. Could have killed them all. It hasn't done it. And it's amazing how the charge of genocide only comes up against Israel when they uh, respond to, you know, to to genocidal murderers' attacks on Israel. It's it to me, it's a hothouse logic kind of crazy pills kind of debate. But it's it's very clear. A lot of people buy into it. Anyway. I keep distracting myself. I don't know about this, you know, I, so we don't know for sure whether Iran greenlit this. I think it is obvious that Iran is deeply responsible, not solely responsible, but is deeply culpable in this because they've been keeping Hamas on the payroll. They knew exactly what Hamas is. They had deep and abiding ties with Hamas. Hamas has been very clear about what it wants to do and how it wants to do it. And then when they do something, Iran says, well, we had no idea. I mean, you can, like, if you keep a moat around your castle and you keep, you know, frickin' sharks with lasers on their heads swimming around in it and you feed them and you train them to kill people and then someone falls in the moat and gets killed, you can't pretend like you're not partly responsible because it's like, that's why you had the frickin' lasers with sharks on their heads. And similarly, like when Hamas does what Hamas does um, and you've kept them on payroll for years and you've supported them and you applaud what they did after they did it to then get super technical legal about whether or not you were, you know, you signed off on the memo or you ordered the attack. Again, I get it for intelligence purposes. It's always better to have facts than not have facts. But as a moral sort of question, it's just that's a really stupid argument to me. And the people were like, how dare you say Iran, you know, had you know, did this? I mean, 
because it's like the easiest friggin' dare, you know, challenge to accept. I think Iran, you know, is, is deep into this. And but where I think there's even less evidence, obviously, and that's why I got into that big cul-de-sac about, you know, Kui Bono or who benefits is I think Russia probably signed off on this, too. I know Russia and Iran are very tightly knit right now. Iran is sending all sorts of drones and other weapons to um, to Russia to attack Ukraine. And um, they both benefit enormously from roiling oil markets. Um, they are, um, and Putin desperately needs uh, to distract the West from Ukraine. Um, it's been very obvious that he's been trying to do that to sort of foment things. Um, he has been, you know, one of the reasons why I have such contempt for the Republican Party, you know, rallying around Donald Trump is, I mean, obviously people who know me know I have a very long list of reasons to be angry about all that. But uh, one of them is that it's it's obvious that Putin is waiting to see if a political change in America um, will yield benefits for him in the war with Ukraine. That's why I have such a problem with like J.D. Vance's approach to this, which is like, it's he's the one who was exploiting Israel, the issue about what's going on with Israel, to further his political priority of having America abandon Ukraine. And so the reason why I brought up the sort of axis of a-holes thing is that uh, Russia and Iran are joined at the hip these days, along with like North Korea and obviously Syria, which is basically a vassal state of, of Iran and Russia, right? It's in the interest of the United States for both Ukraine and Israel to prevail in these conflicts. But it's even more in the interest of the United States for Israel, for, for America, um, to be a staunch ally and honor its commitments. Like all these people who think the Pax Americana stuff was bad and that, you know, and like, I don't like the talk about a global policeman or, you know, any of that kind of stuff, because I don't think that it really captures what America was doing. But America, the America that the international order that America sustained with the help of allies over the last half, more than half a century, nearly a century now, was good for America and it was good for the world. And the people who think that America that retreats into some sort of fortress America and doesn't honor its alliances, doesn't, doesn't honor its commitments, doesn't help its allies in their time of need, they think that somehow is going to make a better world. It's a very Chomskyite, um, head-past-your-own-sphincter kind of thinking about things. No, what you get when, you know, when America retreats um, and 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 lets the jungle grow back, as, you know, Robert Kagan would put it, on the international stage, you get more stuff like this. You get more chaos. You get, you create uh, a vacuum that worse, crappier kind of, like, you, I have no problem with people who have criticisms about American foreign policy and, you know, we are not a perfect nation or any of that stuff. That's all fine. But if you think an international order sustained by, by China and Russia would be a better, safer, more prosperous world, I think you're an idiot. Or I think you're just, you have a sort of a very literary, fantastical, radical understanding of, of, of international politics and the way the world works. And I don't think I need to take you very seriously. And so to me, it's, it's not, you know, World War II analogies are always of limited utility. And it's, this is not like, 
World War II in a lot of ways. And part because we're not putting boots on the ground. We're not actually sending troops to fight anywhere. But it is, in the, in a sense, I see it as the same war in two different theaters, right? I mean, Ukraine's by far, by no means a perfect, you know, thriving liberal democracy. But it's trying to be. It wants to be. That is why Putin... Um, that's one of the major reasons why Putin found thought it was vital that he invade when he invaded, because he saw that Ukraine was steadily orienting itself westward towards the EU, um, even towards NATO, um, and a thriving, prosperous, democratic, rule of law bound Ukraine, which Ukraine is not there yet, right? But it's trying. That the prospect of that kind of Ukraine would have been utterly destabilizing to Putin's understanding of how Russia needs to be governed, to his political, ideological philosophy, such as it is. Because, the, de the, the you know, Putin makes up a lot of stuff about how Ukrainians don't really exist and that they don't have a distinct culture and really they were just little Russians and all that stuff. And uh, a lot of that is just, just propaganda nonsense. Um, and warmed over a Slavophile BS, but he's absolutely, you know, it, it, it's, it's absolutely true that Ukraine, Ukrainians and Russians share a lot of common history, share a lot of cultural perspectives, share a lot of religious perspectives. They're not the same country. I'm not trying to make that case, but uh, you can't have a thriving, healthy, democratic Ukraine just next door to Russia without it having a massive demonstration fact, effect for domestic policies in Russia. And then you add in Putin's grandiose ideas about restoring the glory of either the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire and all that nonsense. And you can see why he did it. And it is in our interest for Ukraine to become that kind of country. You know, it's going to be a long time before Ukraine can join the EU, and I think it should be a long time before it can join the EU, at least under, you know, under under the the normal reasons why it takes a long time to get into the EU. But, and it's going to take even longer for it to get into NATO. Um, but it should be on that path. And we've made assurances to Ukraine, not just in this current phase of their war, but uh, we made assurances to them when we took all those nuclear weapons out of Ukraine. They weren't guarantees, but they were assurances or some similar Weasley word. Going back on all of that, going back on, on Biden's support, just sends a terrible signal that when our allies, people we've declared to be our allies, right? You may not think Ukraine should be our ally or anything like that, but we've in effect said that they are and that we're gonna get their back to the hilt as long as it takes. I don't like a lot of the ways Biden has talk, talked about this. I don't like a lot of this mother may I, mother may I, mother may I, no, 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 yes kind of stuff. I think we should have given them more earlier. But on the big question, Biden's on the right side of Ukraine and he has made declarations putting the full faith and credit of the United States, diplomatically speaking and foreign policy speaking, behind helping the Ukrainians repel this invasion. And even if you dislike that decision, I mean, there were people who dis did not want to go to war with Japan, did not want to go to war with, with Germany. But once the decision was made, most of those guys, most of those America first guys fell in line. 
and said, you know, my country's at war, whatever, I'm, I'm going to sign up and help. Some of them weren't allowed to help. FDR was pretty pissed at some of them, but that's a topic for another day. And again, I'm not saying we should be going to war for Ukraine. We shouldn't be going to war for Ukraine. But like the logic still applies insofar as we've made a commitment. Um, we need to demonstrate to the world that we can honor our commitments, that we can chew what we bite off. And I think, you know, the, 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 the J.D. Vance view of all of this just rejects all of that on its face and seems to think, because it's bad to help Ukraine, that showing that we um, are not reliable wouldn't hurt our standing in the world, wouldn't have a huge moral hazard about how China looks at Taiwan and all that. I just think it's really bad analysis, very partisan, very boob-baity analysis, and I have no respect for it. And I just don't find any of it convincing in any of the particulars. And, you know, just one last point on this alliance thing. Um, the war in Ukraine is really important to our allies in Russia. I mean, I'm sorry. Is Ukraine, the Ukraine war is really important to our allies in Europe, particularly in this thing called NATO. NATO dropped everything and got our backs after 9-11. They have a reliance interest on us. We have a reliance interest on them. People who say they're not doing their part are just simply wrong. Doesn't mean they can't do more, you know. We can do more. But they're taking in millions of refugees, particularly the Poles, as percentage of GDP. And I think now in actually absolute terms, they're giving more than the U.S. is. Um, now, I think, you know, NATO countries should be upping their defense budgets. I think we should be upping our defense budget and all that kind of stuff. But this idea that somehow when NATO, when our NATO allies need us to help, and again, we're not talking about sending troops in, um, need us to help um, an invaded country that is trying to be a prosperous democracy because it is, and it would move the threat from Russia much closer to NATO's doorstep, right? I mean, already, it just, it strikes me as, as a preposterous sort of um, approach to foreign policy. And the same thing, a lot of that same logic applies to Israel. We've said in Republican and Democratic administrations alike that we are going to get Israel's back, that they are a strategic ally, uh, that they can count on us. You may disagree with that policy. There are smart people who don't like that policy. There are smart people who want us to start curtailing, you know, who've, who've been arguing for a while to, that we need to start curtailing our aid to Israel for Israel's own good. I don't buy some of those arguments, but I don't think that they're inherently anti-Semitic or anything like that. But when Israel is under you know, very serious threat, has something as heinous as this happened to it. I think it is right and proper just as a matter of American honor and integrity and commitment for Joe Biden to get Israel's back and say some of the things that he said. I think they were good. But it's also just in our interest to be perceived as a reliable ally. It's also, you know, I, I'm fairly convinced that one of the reasons why Biden came out so forcefully so early, I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't believe in the stuff that he's been saying on for other reasons, you know, like just the moral case and all that. But his it was it was the right thing to do because I suspect that they had intelligence saying that this was um, a pretext for Iran to take advantage of the situation. And he wanted to make it very clear that 
no one should get in the middle of this fight between Israel and Hamas, and you shouldn't open up a second front. And the only way to send that signal is to make it very clear that America has got Israel's back for the long haul in this conflict, wherever it goes, and to project force to that part of the world with, you know, those two aircraft carrier groups. Um, both those aircraft carriers, weirdly, are Republican president, named after Republican presidents. I think it's the Eisenhower and the Gerald Ford. And so for me, the, you know, obviously there are two different countries. There are two different sets of issues involved in all sorts of, there are many different sets of issues involved in, in both countries. NATO is not nearly as concerned with Israel as, you know, it is with what's going on in its own backyard. And that is totally fine um, and understandable. But the U.S. interests are are pretty much the same in both. And the people who are fighting on the uh, the bad guys in both on both fronts are basically the same coalition of crappy countries that are our geopolitical adversaries. You know, and look, Iran is more of a foe than 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 China is in some ways, but China is a bigger threat because of what it you know the kind of country that it is than, than Iran is. But you go down the list of the people who are sort of getting Hamas's back or 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 are taking the Palestinian side in this. These are countries that are in a an ad, an adversarial block um, to our own. This idea that you can selectively pick and choose which countries, which allies we're going to support at a time like this, I just think is is juvenile nonsense. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. So uh, something I'd really love to write about, I know a bit about, um, but if somebody knows some good articles on it, send my way, drop me an email. Um, I'm just Jonah at the dispatch.com. So I, I've, I've, I've talked about this in other contexts a few times before about how I think one of the things that people don't appreciate is the degree to which a lot of the crappy, I keep using the word crappy, I'll try to stop, I apologize. Um, a lot of the really nonsensical, bad, mythological, false misinformation, propaganda ideas that have wide currency in, in, um, in the West among, mostly among like sort of the radical left, but these days, a lot of this garbage is being scooped up and recycled and repurposed by sort of the garbage radical right. Um, but anyway, well, that a lot of a lot of really bad ideas, false ideas, um, were put in the Western bloodstream as acts of uh, 
communist propaganda, right? Particularly in places like Africa. There was a whole system of getting articles placed in pretty sketchy newspapers in one third world country or another, and then distributing those articles in other countries where people didn't know that this was a, you know, a, a, a shady communist rag in the first place. Oh, the Kinshasa Times, this must be a great newspaper, right? And there's all these different methods for transmission belt of different, you know, terrible ideas. Um, you know, I, the CIA created AIDS. You can go down a very long list, right? Um, and, uh, and the staying power of a lot of those ideas, um, you know, uh, has been remarkable. You know, it's sort of like the Protocols of Elders of Zion, which, you know, was an idea that went pretty far back, but it really penetrated the world, not because of the Soviet regime, but because of the czarist regime. They created a propaganda ministry um, that uh, distributed this stuff, um, um, and it was a remarkably successful, in an evil kind of way, um, propaganda dissemination effort. And it has, you know, it's had this amazingly long half-life. Um, but uh, anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is, and the thing I want to read more up on is um, a lot of this post-colonial theory stuff um, or anti-colonial theory, um, the sort of national liberation stuff, um, it's, it has DNA going, you know, back to, uh, you know, sort of KGB, what do they call them, direct measures, uh, you know, was it Patrice Lumumba University, which was founded in 1960, um, I think it's 1960, uh, where, what's his name, the, the president of the West Bank, you know, of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. There's at least somebody yelling at it out in their car right now. Mahmoud Abbas, right? So Mahmoud Abbas, who's the, I think he's in the 16th or 18th year of his first four-year term, hopelessly corrupt and kind of uh, quizzling in all sorts of ways. But uh, he got his PhD from uh, Patrice Lumumba University with a, sort of a, a thesis that was essentially Holocaust denial about how the Zionists worked with the Nazis to kill the Jews so that the other Jews who escaped would come to Israel and found Israel. And he called the six million killed number a grotesque lie. And um, he even has somewhere in there this really convoluted theory that Adolf Eichmann was about to spill the beans about his work with the Zionists, uh, I think, to Life magazine. And so they... That's why the Israelis killed him, right? It couldn't possibly be because he was like one of the architects of the final solution. And they were trying to kill, they were trying to, cap, you know, capture and put on trial uh, any of the, you know, Nazis responsible for murdering six million Jews. It had to be this conspiracy theory that he was about to spill the goods, right? He was sort of a, it's unfair to Sidney Powell, who's a crackpot, but she's not like Adolf Eichmann, right? But it's it's sort of like, you know, the theory that she was like, going to release the Kraken and reveal all of this information. And that's why the deep state had to shut her up. It's that kind of thinking, but about, you know, something a lot more serious. Anyway, I think Daniel Ortega went to Patrice Lumumba University and, you know, and the, the Patrice Lumumba himself was a, you know, uh, a character. Um, but it's 
there was all of the there were all of these efforts at um, legitimizing, credentializing, crazy, conspiratorial left wing. Uh, and left wing is a little unfair to like decent left wingers. Soviet agitprop as as serious, you know, scholarship and serious ideas. And these, you know, the students and the professors, you know disseminated this stuff into the bloodstreams of a lot of societies where it still endures uh, to this day. And I think it's sort of a fascinating topic. And, you know, and that's not the stuff that I want to read up on. Though. I mean, I'm, if you have anything on that, send it my way too. But the stuff I actually want to read up on is, is I think a lot of this stuff actually begins with the, 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 the original gangster Bolsheviks themselves, right? It's, it's deeply tied up in a lot of Trotsky's ideas about it's not the permanent revolution, although that's part of it. It's it's uh, his theory about I think it's called uneven development or something like that. But anyway, you know, so the thing to remember, all right, the relevant part here is that even the Bolsheviks never believed that the Bolshevik revolution could survive if Germany in particular, but basically if, if, if Germany and Britain and other Western countries didn't have their own Bolshevik revolutions, right? That's where the communist revolutions were supposed to take place, according to Marx. And um, for complicated and not altogether irrational reasons, they, the Bolsheviks didn't think they could maintain power in Russia if the more powerful, you know, nations and more industrial nations to their west didn't join the worldwide revolution, revolutionary struggle. And that's why they were so into the, what was it, the, the Spartacist League in, in Germany in 1919-ish. And, uh, sorry, my wife just walked into the room. So anyway, that's why the Germans were, that's why the Bolsheviks were so into supporting the, the, the Spartacist, I think that's what it was called, um, revolutions in, in Germany. They were convinced that, um, that those countries are on the brink of um, their own sort of Bolshevik revolutions, and they supported them and rooted for them partly out of a conception of, of survival for the Russian Revolution. Obviously, that did not happen. Rosa Luxemburg and all those guys were killed and thrown in a ditch or something. And it, I think it was Trotsky who started to develop this theory, and, you know, obviously Lenin bought into it, that the real path towards um, unfolding success and world dominance and, and putting the chemicals in fried chicken that make you crave it fortnightly would happen in the East and the South. And they started to develop these theories of helping these weaker, more, you know, like, so Russia was more rural, feudal, deindustrialized, uh, backward, um, to use a pejorative phrase, than uh, the countries to their west, right? European countries were, West European countries were more economically advanced, more industrialized, had better armies and, than Russia did. But Russia had, was more advanced, more industrialized, and had better armies than a lot of those uh, countries to their east and to their south. So they developed this idea that you know, maybe their, their, their way to secure their position in the world for the long haul was to foment similar Bolshevik revolutions 
in those countries, you know, starting with the, you know, the sort of obvious ones that were once part of the Russian Empire, Georgia, Armenia, that kind of stuff. But then it kept moving further south. And a lot of these post-colonial ideas that have taken root among the sort of the pro-Hamas crowd and the anti-Israel crowd, and they're not all the same crowd, obviously. There are a lot of people who are anti-Israel that are not pro-Hamas. There aren't a lot of people who are pro-Hamas who aren't anti-Israel. Um, but that approach, I think, seeped into an enormous amount of, of sort of radical academic literature and scholarship. And I use both, I use the word scholarship advisedly. Um, I don't think all anti-colonial stuff is is even wrong. I mean, look, we were, the <laughs> United States of America fought a revolution against the colonial power. I think the Indians were right, you know, under Gandhi to want to get out of the British Empire. There's nothing inherently illegitimate about any of those kinds of movements, necessarily. It is absolutely cockamamie to hear it from defenders of Vladimir Putin, the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, or even, you know, even to a certain extent from Muslim radicals, right? I mean, like, the idea that Muslims are profoundly offended. I mean, I, I don't want to speak for against all Muslims or anything like that. There are, there's a lot of diversity and heterogeneity in the Muslim world. But I'm talking about the sort of the Muslim extremist types, the people who believe in the unerring word of the Quran in ways that give them permission to uh, murder Jews in their beds, that kind of thing. The idea that they have a real problem with imperialism. I mean, uh, you can overstate this or understate this. It can get in a lot of trouble how you put it. But like Islam in its foundational years was explicitly a religion of the sword. It was a religion of empire. Um, its entire conception of how Islam, once Islam conquers a land, it needs to stay Muslim for all time. You know, all that sort of house of war, house of peace stuff. It is a religion of empire in its foundation. Now, look, I mean, we don't need to paint with such a broad brush today, but the people who, you know, shout the most about, you know, these colonial settlers in, 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 in Palestine, uh, their understanding of Islam is it's a, it's a religion of empire, justifiably so. And, you know, Russia talking about, you know, Russia spent, its uh, the Soviet Union spent its entire time and power in the, the, during the Cold War, casting itself as an anti-imperial power while it, I can't remember, I think it was Kissinger who said that, you know, during the course of its existence, the Soviet Union expanded by the size of one Belgium a year or something like that. The Soviet Union was an imperial power that took over countries that installed, you know, uh, vassal governments to um, protect uh, Soviet interests. The Russian Empire obviously was this thing called an uh, empire, you know, and it was much more culturally imperialistic than, um, say, the British Empire, or and certainly more culturally imperialistic than the Roman Empire. You know, we talked about this before, but you know, the Romans didn't try to impose their values on on the colonies, the, the countries that they sort of conquered and um, demanded tribute from or taxes from. My understanding from Brett Devereaux is that they let, you know, the local elites run their countries any way they wanted or their tribes or their kingdoms or their fiefdoms, whatever you want to call them. 
Um, let them, they let them run any way they want. So long as they paid, you know, their, their taxes on time, it was fine with them. The only thing that the Romans kind of threw a wet blanket on was, uh, human sacrifice. They didn't like it. Right. And so to me, that's that it's not the worst form of imperialism to ban human sacrifice. Anyway, so the, the stuff about this notion about, you know, the, the Soviet Union being this anti colonial, anti imperial power and the friend of all of these uh, liberated nation states, uh, you know, in Africa, you know, there's a lot of that stuff going on in the 1960s, and the Soviets ran in there with aid and support without a care in the world, obviously, for democracy or human rights or any of that kind of stuff. But they wanted, you know, to build up a Soviet-aligned bloc. And I think that while I know I've read a lot about that stuff as a matter of realpolitik kind of thing, I think it actually was an ideologically, uh, it, there was a, a degree of ideological determination to it as well that stemmed right out of the original sort of Trotskyite theories about worldwide revolution from uh, developing countries instead of from developed countries. Because, you know, the horrible bourgeoisie in the West was just, and the ruling classes were too powerful to let the workers of the world in their part of the world unite or anything like that. But there was still this, like, strike while the iron is hot opportunity for these former colonial holdings. And so I just think it's it's one of these sort of tragic situations where you get a lot of of really evil, terrible ideas that people think have been reached through independent, you know, serious scholarship, which actually have an enormous amount of, of Soviet propaganda and um, and Soviet ideological DNA to it. Anyway, that's what I wanted to read up more on. I have um, my lovely bride here trying to take a nap while I'm talking, which is somewhat fitting. Um, so I'm probably going to call it quits because I still have to write um, a G file and I have no idea what I'm going to write about because I'm not up to speed on a lot of things. Oh, speaking of G files, thank you for all the nice feedback from most of you about the Wednesday G file. Um, Adam asked me to read the whole thing. Um, I don't know why or what I'll do with it, but um, I, I will give that a try later today. Oh, and you if you're a paid member of the dispatch community or also known as a subscriber, you've probably gotten an email about the skiff. It's it's up and going and there's going to be more and more content in there as time goes by. I'm in Italy for a few more days. Uh, we'll be back by the end of next week. Um, we have, I think, some remnants still in the can to uh keep the, to feed the beast but if i need to get a guest host in here i will oh that's the other thing thank you so much to chris starwalt uh for uh having mike duncan on and doing that roman empire podcast i finally listened to it and i only have one complaint which i should probably just tell him but i haven't told him yet so we'll see how long it takes for him to hear that i'm complaining about it so he begins the podcast with this with the sort of the news peg about how, you know, the, that TikTok viral thing where turns out men think about the Roman Empire a lot. I wrote about how I think about the Roman Empire a lot and how weird it is that men think about the Roman Empire. Why do men think about the Roman Empire? All that kind of stuff. He grounds it in that's the context about why he has Mike Duncan on to talk about the Roman Empire. And at no point in the conversation does he ask Duncan, why does he think 
men think so much about the Roman Empire. I mean, it was a great interview and a great conversation, and I'm a huge Mike Duncan fan, but, like, I thought from the setup of the the conversation, the way Chris was talking about it, that, like, he was on to answer that question, and he just never got asked that question. And, you know, it, it pains me to have to fire Starwalt over this, but, you know, you have to, uh, you know, observe the forms. So, uh, anyway, thank you very much for listening. Again, apologies if I repeated myself. I, re- I truly and sincerely can't remember if I did. Um, I am now as embarrassed as I am to do this podcast under normal circumstances, sitting alone talking to a mic. Given that my wife hates that I do this podcast and she's actually in the room listening to me as I do it, it is incredibly uncomfortable. Um, I'm kind of getting that tingly cold sweat on the back of my neck. So uh, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm just terrified to turn around and be turned into a pillar of salt or something. So uh, thank you for listening and uh, please become a subscriber to the Dispatch if you're not already and check out the skiff and let us know what you think. Every time there's a technical issue that people mention in the comments about any of the podcasts, I always send that stuff to to Adam and he swears that he's on all of it. So please let me know if there are any any sort of technical issues and I'll talk to you next time.